This is Radio Maria, and we now present Word of Life. This program is a rebroadcast. This is Father Toby with you live from Cambridge and with our word for life um, on today, Tuesday. Uh, we're going to continue our reading of the uh, Frederick Christian Bowersmith book, The Love That Is God, An Invitation to, to Christian Faith. Um, we're still in the first chapter and we've been looking at the, the sort of the radical claim that, that God is love, um, how this is not just a, a sort of claim rooted in, in, in sentiment to, to make ourselves somehow feel better, but a claim about the, the very nature, um, of God, who, 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 who God, who God is. And we said that this is not just, uh, an attribute of, of God that we're, that we're talking about, um, but the very, the very nature of God. And then we were we were looking at some of the the ramifications of that, and um, and in our last uh, reading we we looked at, at Ju- Julian of Norwich's um, beautiful reflections on on God being kind in His being, and uh, and we saw a sort of uh, a double implication um, in that, uh, in the there are beings of different kinds um you know your dog is different to your cat to your fish to to you to the tree to the to the to the rock and we have to know what kind of thing a thing a thing is and we have to know about it in order to know how to be kind to it um because to be kind is not simply just to sort of say nice things and to be affirming, but rather to be truly kind is to help a thing and particularly a, a person to to fulfil their nature. And so, if we don't know what the nature of a of a of a thing is, we're not we're not able to to help it flourish. So we're going to uh, resume our reading on um, page fourteen. Um, if you happen to have bought the book, which I'd really recommend you do. It's a really, really wonderful um, book, but hopefully you're already persuaded of that because you're listening. But the belief that God is love, benevolence or kindness should not be confused with the belief that God is nice. As the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. put it, the greatness of our God lies in the fact that he is both tough-minded and tender-hearted. The Bible gives ample evidence of a God who makes demands on people and holds them accountable, letting them suffer the consequences of their desire to live as if their existence were not God's gift. One way to interpret the story of Adam and Eve in the garden is that in tempting Adam and Eve to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil so as to be like God, 
the serpent is tempting them to seek to be the source of their own existence. But of course we are not the source of our own existence. So when we declare independence from God, our existence begins to diminish, to become weak and paltry. St. Augustine writes, To abandon God and to exist in oneself, that is to please oneself, is not immediately to lose all being but it is to come close to nothingness. And so just a, a couple of my uh, reflections on, on what we've just said there. Um, I love the, you know, the way um, Martin Luther King puts it, the greatness of God lies in the fact that he's both tough-minded and tender-hearted. Um, and we relate to, to, to God as father. We know that God is not actually a, a, a man um, or God the Father is not not a man as such. Jesus obviously was a was a man, but the God God the Father had and, and the and the fullness of the of the divinity has both attributes which we associate as generally female or as generally male. And as we know, there's not an, an exclusive line that that runs between those two things. But nonetheless, having a, a vision of sort of God as as Father, and particularly you know God as as parent, I think is is very helpful because it, it it gets us away from ideas that you know if God were to to punish us, then God can't be kind. That if God were to allow something bad to happen, that God therefore doesn't love us. Because if we look um, at what it is to be a to be a parent, um, sometimes you know parents have to have to punish their children, even though it hurts them to 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 do it maybe what the child has done is incredibly naughty and and incredibly funny um but nonetheless they need to they need to 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 discipline them i remember my parents talking about how um they'd left me with with some people at a point where i lived in we lived in in sierra leone and uh, and these ladies had had taught me how to how to swear and use all sorts of um bad language and one of the things that uh, my parents absolutely couldn't do was uh, was was laugh um but also they couldn't make too big a too big a deal of it at other times when you do when you do otherwise i would keep on using those words um and detect power in them to get a reaction but in other situations you have to clamp down hard um you have to make clear like when a child runs out into the road um, that this is something incredibly serious and that just can't be sort of tolerated and action needs to be taken. In other situations, the child that will have realized of, of their own accord being maybe so so scared by the um, by the mistake or the or the thing they've intentionally done wrong, feel so sort of dread, dreadful about it. Um, that actually there's there's no need there's no need for punishment, the kind of sin, um, and the experience of the effects of the sin has has, has been its, its own sufficient deterrent, and God sort of has to parent us in in all these different different ways. And if we think as God as parent, then I think that that uh, that avoids um, that sort of simplistic thing, which is like, well, God is love, and therefore God just has to give me whatever I want, um, whenever I I want, and just always be really affirming. And the other and the other thing. That I want to look at is that 
God is the source of, of all being. Um, God is the, the source of, of my existence speaking to you right now. And he's the, the, the source of, of existence of, of you who are, who are listening. Um, and let's give thanks for, for both of, for both of those things. Um, and that God invites us into his divine life. He invites us to, to participate in his divine nature, which is, which is love. Um, but sometimes we, we choose to sort of try and go our, go our own way. And when we do that, we sort of cut ourselves off from, from the source of our, our existence, or at least we, we cease to be in a, in a meaningful relation. We're still in a relation of like, God is our cause and, and we're, and we're the, the effect, but it becomes a, a very sort of, you know, sort of materialistic relation in a certain way. It's not, not a full relationship where we're, we're conscious of, of existing in relation to this person who loves us. And I think that's what Augustine means when we sort of abandon God and seek to exist in ourselves, that we don't lose all being, but we do come close to, to nothingness. And so the more we acknowledge um, the reality of God, the more real, in a certain sense, we become the more existence we have and the more we try and assert our independent existence, the, the less we become. So let's carry on with um, Bauerschmidt's reflections. God permits us to suffer this paltriness, which we experience not simply in terms of our mortality, but also in our inability to align our loving with the love that is God our inability to direct our passions and desires in ways that are life-giving. Archita and Palamon, um, those are the, the two characters who, who were mentioned, I think, in our, in our second episode, um, who sort of both are a bit self-obsessed and trying to get the girl Emily. But Archita and Palamon are led to unhappy ends by their rivalrous passion for Emily, who for her part must suffer being turned from a fled flesh and blood person into a limited commodity to be fought over and ultimately of losing the agency of her single life for the sake of a political alliance. It is as if, bereft of belief in the God who is benevolent love, Chaucer's lovers make themselves into images of the self-seeking deities whom they worship. And so just one final reflection from me on that before we go into our uh, first music break. Um, there's a, a, a lovely line in um, uh, Terry Pratchett, one of Terry Pratchett's Discworld novels where uh, Granny, Granny Weatherwax, um, one of the main characters, uh, says that, um, you know, all sin begins with, with treating people as objects and Whilst that's not quite all sin, the nature of so much of our of our sin is where we objectify the person. Um, we can objectify ourselves, but also so often we objectify others. We turn them into a into a means rather than a than an end. So when the the person becomes a means to my happiness, um, as opposed to that that person's happiness. Um, becomes my end, becomes what I seek to achieve. And I experience happiness in doing so. Um, that, that if, the, if I'm just self-obsessed and concerned with how the person makes me feel 
and not with what their true flourishing is, then I objectify the person. And when I turn a person into an object rather than the subject, then I'm not treating them according to the kind of thing that they are. And so let's go to um, our first music break now. And we're going to listen to a, a, a song which actually I discovered last week. Um, but uh, I really, really love by a Christian couple, Mark and Sarah Tillman. And this is You Belong to Me. Um, I think they're, they're, from, they're from Canada and they met at a, a music festival. I hope you enjoy it as much as I do. Thank you. 
That was Mark and Sarah Tillman with You Belong to Me. And now we return to our reading of The Love That Is God. Scripture attests not only to God letting us experience the consequences of our actions, but also to God taking action against the wicked. The prophets of the Old Testament verbally lacerate the people of Israel in the name of God for failing to keep God's covenant of love and justice. Amos delivers the following message from the God who is love. I hate, I despise your festivals, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the offerings of well-being of your fatted animals, I will not look upon. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the melody of your harps. But let justice roll down like waters, and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. And then he goes on. The New Testament's book of Revelation presents a no less sobering vision of a divine day of reckoning. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, With such violence Babylon the great city will be thrown down and will be found no more. And the sound of harpists and minstrels and of flautists and trumpeters will be heard in you no more. And an artisan of any trade will be found in you no more. And the sound of the millstone will be heard in you no more. And the light of a lamp will shine in you no more. And the voice of bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. For your merchants were the magnates of the earth, and all nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in you was found the blood of prophets and of saints, and of all who have been slaughtered on earth. To those who oppress the poor and slaughter the prophets and saints, the God of love appears as a fire consuming them like chaff. How can we claim that God is love, while at the same time saying that God allows us to suffer the consequences of our actions, or even worse, that God takes action against us because of our injustice? Can perfect love be both tough-minded and tender-hearted? Perhaps it is a matter of perspective. If we abandon the perspective of those who think they are in control, and take up the perspective of those who are oppressed and defenceless, then scriptural passages like those quoted above appear a bit differently, not simply as punishment of the wicked, but as divine vindication for those who have been wronged. Perhaps the full unveiling of the love of God will look and feel different to us depending on the degree to which we have aligned ourselves with that love and with those most protected, defended, and claimed by that love. The fire of love that warms and purifies also consumes and destroys. The light that illuminates can also blind. St. Catherine of Siena writes, A healthy eye looks at the sun and sees light, but a sick eye sees nothing but darkness when it looks into such lightsomeness. And it is no fault of the light that it seems so different to the two, 
the fault is in the sick eye. If we have narrowed our hearts, the experience of being flooded with the love that is God might painfully burst them open. But to have hope in God is to believe that no heart can be burst beyond God's power to mend. And I think that uh, what Bauer Schmidt sort of talks about in that passage is, is so, so important. Um, both the, the matter of, of perspective and realizing that, um, that love um, might be per- perceived differently according to the, the kind of the sinfulness of the, of the, of the person. Um, you know, think of the, the child perhaps who has a sort of a, a keen sense of, of justice and, and, and recognizes um, the kind of the legitimacy and the, and the fairness of their punishment versus the, the child who's rather sort of entrenched in, in bad behavior and, and fights even against the, the punishment it, itself, not able to sort of un, understand um, why what they've done is, is, is wrong nor why they should be punished um, for it. But also to think that, that in a certain way, um, do we not desire sort of justice for, for, for others? Is there, is there not a part of us that wants, um, say, figures like Hitler or, or Stalin to, to in some ways be, be answerable um, for what they, what they did? Now, I'm not saying that we should desire that they be in, in hell, um, although I think if you're if you're sort of Jewish or if you're um, uh, sort of you know a Russian who, whose family died at, at the at the hands of of Stalin, then then that that sentiment is is certainly un, under under understandable. Um, but rather, I, I think it would be offensive to us in some ways if if someone like Hitler were to were to just die and go and go straight to straight to heaven. That would seem to to go against the, the the love that is that is God because the the way Hitler lived so much of his his public life seems so profoundly opposed to to God's loving nature. Um, and then we have to remember that that what is what is true of of Hitler and and, and Stalin is um hopefully in a in a much reduced way but nonetheless still true of our of ourselves um the way that so often we seek um dominion uh, the way that so often we can seek to to use others for for our means to to maybe not coerce people um or to sort of kill people who get in our way but perhaps nonetheless sometimes to to manipulate them um to to deceive to 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 lie um in order to try and get my my own way and then to think sort of you know do, do i do not need some of that sort of purifying fire of the of the of the love of god not just the 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 gentle sort of caress and the and the tenderness but also sometimes the the firm the firm hand of god um i think in any parenting probably carrot and stick is uh, is necessary and i don't think that we should expect it should be different with god um perhaps you perhaps you do think differently perhaps you disagree with me or perhaps you maybe want to share a a tale of a, a time where sort of you know 
what what seemed like a, a, a terrible punishment from from God um, actually turned out to be to be something that, that set you back on the path to 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 loving. Um, always love to to hear your hear your stories um, and hear about your experience of what we're what we're what we're talking about. Um, if you do wish to to call in and share any any reflections with me, then please do call the number is 01223-375-564. That's 01223-375-564. Um, do let me do let me know your reflections. But now we're we're going to go to another um, music break, and we're going to uh, listen to to Voce's eight singing. Uh, Looks Eterna by Nimrod.
So let's continue with our reading from Bauschmidt's The Love That Is God. The mystery of the gift of our existence, this manifestation of the God who is love in what is not God, is rooted in a still deeper mystery, the mystery of interpersonal love within God's own self, in the shared love of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. St. Augustine writes, If you see love, you see the Trinity. The 12th century theologian Richard of St. Victor expands on this insight by reflecting on what it means to believe that God is not simply love, but the greatest love. Implicitly drawing on St. Anselm's idea of God as something than which no greater can be thought, Richard argues that if God is love, God must be the highest form of love that we can conceive. The greatest love, he says, is caritas, which is the Latin term that Western theologians use to translate the New Testament's Greek term agape. This is the love that Paul writes of in his first letter to the Corinthians, Christians. Love is patient, love is kind. Love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Richard notes that no one is said to have this caritas if their love is directed solely to themselves. It must be directed to another. It must be interpersonal. Likewise, the caritas of God, since it is the most perfect love, must be directed toward that which is most perfect. But only God is perfect. So the love that is God cannot be directed first and foremost to created things, but must be directed toward one who is God. This suggests that there must be within God a kind of otherness, so that the love that is God might be both perfect and truly interpersonal. Richard writes, So that the fullness of charity can occur in true divinity, it is necessary for a divine person not to lack the fellowship with a person of equal dignity, and for that reason a divine person. The love that is God, if it is to be the highest sort of love, must be not just love given, but also love received, since love cannot be pleasant if it is not also mutual, as anyone who has suffered from unrequited love can attest. And so just to, to add a couple of my own um, reflections to that there, um, I think it's so important um, what what he says there about um what what St Paul says about love rejoicing in the in the in the tr in the truth um and uh, about sort of loving that which is which is most perfect um because so so often i think it's the case that, that christians think that um that if if they sort of you know love god before all other things then then somehow they love um other people other people less um but when we reflect on, on what 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 love is and, and what is proper to love we love that which is which is good 
if some if I was to say to somebody, oh, well, why do you, why why do why do you why do you love that? And they said, well, I love it because it's really bad. Um, then I would say, well, why do you love something that's that's really bad? Why 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 do you why do you do that? That doesn't make, seem to make sense to to love what is what is bad or or what is what is evil. No, we we recognise that that we're supposed to love um, good things and hate um, bad bad things. But we also know that what goes wrong in our life is that sometimes we we mistake what is good for what is um, what is good for what is bad and what is bad for, for for what is good. And so sort of Christian loving in order to to love well also sort of requires a a training in our in our in our seeing well. Um, that if we don't see what is truly good, then we won't love what is what is truly good. And so often when we look at our when we look at our sin and when we look at lives which go astray, we we realize it's not that there's 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 malice there. Um not that there's malice so much as there's just sort of real mistakenness, real ignorance uh, a real sort of sad sort of idea that that this thing which is which is not worthy of me um is going to is going to bring me happiness and, and when it doesn't sort of as opposed to sort of giving up on that on that thing there's a sort of a pushing harder for it or for that person maybe even even more and more um but when we see god for who God really is, which is the the source of not only our existence, but everything, every person that I that I love. Then the proper re- response to that is to to love God above all things, and that doesn't mean that I that I love my my child or my husband or my wife less, um, but rather seeing the, the the sort of the person on earth who i who i love more than more than anyone else and recognizing that they are a creation um of god they are a, a gift of god they are a product of the love of god my love for god god in, increases it's not in competition with my with my love for this person rather i recognize that this person would not exist were it not for the for the love of god and then when I start to participate in that divine love, when I start to see this person as as God sees them, then I begin to enter into something of the the manner of loving that uh, that St Paul describes in that in that passage from Corinthians, which which people pick at so many weddings for for very good reason because it's so beautiful and so true. So let's go back to our to our text. Richard of St. Victor goes on to argue that the love that is God, as the most perfect love, must exceed even a love shared between two divine persons. Lovers can become so focused on their mutual exchange of love that they become a closed circle that excludes all others. Such love can be its own kind of selfishness, an egoisme à deux. So Richard says, the proof of perfected charity is a willing sharing of the love that has been shown you. The perfect love that God is must not sim- must not simply must be excuse me. The perfect love that God is must be not simply interpersonal, but overflowing. As Richard puts it, 
Shared love is properly said to exist when a third person is loved by two persons harmoniously and in community and the affection of the two persons is fused into one affection by the flames of love for the third. Striving for deeper vision into the mystery of the God who is love, seeking the most perfect of loves, Richard draws upon the Christian understanding of God as Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, existing eternally as one divine essence, to show how God can be the love than which no greater can be thought, an interpersonal love that comes from God and is directed toward God, fruitfully freed of all selfishness, eternally generative of still more love. The God who is love is not a thing, but an activity. The Father is the loving of the Son, and the Son is the returning of love to the Father. And from this mutuality of love, the loving that is the Holy Spirit is breathed out, the contented sigh of the eternal lovers. God is, we might say, the eternal and unconstrained play of interpersonal love. It is from the heart of this eternal play of love that we creatures are brought forward into time and history. Just what a beautiful note to, to end on. The, um, the idea that the, the relationship of love that is the, is the Trinity and that brought us into, into being is also the relationship in which we're, which we're called to, to, to return and to participate in.